Welcome to the Backyard Professor Live videos. We are recording this. Dr. Trevin Hatch joins me tonight. We are going to be discussing one of the most intriguing themes in the New Testament. Why is there such animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees? What's up with that? We're going to do a deep dive on that tonight. So let's get this show rolling. Welcome to tonight's show, everybody. Dr. Hatch, how you doing tonight? Doing pretty good. Feel good. I'm excited for this topic. Yeah, it's good to be here again with you. I am too. It's great to see you again. You're looking good as usual. Hey, uh, you just told me that you are going to do an intriguing um, interfaith tour to the Holy Land. Would you like to give yourself a blurb on that and say when and uh, what your plans are and why you're doing this? This sounds fabulous. I'm going to get my passport so I can come on one of these with you. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I started this little uh, tour company called Sacred Space Tours. And so I've done tours with other, you know, the big cookie cutter Latter-day Saint tour companies, right? But I, one of my research interests is religious tourism and pilgrimage, and I didn't like to set up, and I, I think they could do a lot of things differently in terms of best practices. So I started my own little company, and 2023 was the first year we filled up one bus. Uh, Dan McClellan is actually doing that. I'll be in Jordan at the time, so I can't do it. But we started that to give people two different experiences that what they would get anywhere else. Number one, a field study, like a, almost like a study abroad for students where we really dig in. This is academic, but it's not over people's heads. We got maps and diagrams and we're really treating the people who come with us as students. It's not just devotional. People can get some of that as well. And also an interfaith we're considering, we're, we're trying to plan some interfaith dialogue experiences. So it's not just Latter-day Saints or non-Latter-day Saints. We've got an evangelical pastor who's interested in, in leading tours with me. Um, Dan McClellan's doing it. Uh, Dan McClellan's you know, one of his uh, friends. I've got a Messianic rabbi who's interested. So we're pulling all this together for 2024. So if you guys are interested, uh, one of these guys is an atheist. Uh, so we, we, we welcome humanists and secular people, Jews, evangelicals, Latter-day Saints, post-Mormons, whoever it is. And we're going to go and it's I, that's my dream is to lead this kind of a, a bus and go there. And it's going to be unique and interesting because it's not just going with your own group. It's going with lots of different people. So check us out. SacredSpaceTours.com. We'll have 2024 tours posted within the next week or two. Fantastic. That sounds really cool. I, I am. I'm going to try to get on one of those 2024 tours. That would be a very delightful kind of a supplement everything we're doing. I, I hear the Holy Land has become overly commercialized, but with the tour guide and New Testament experts like you and Dan McClellan and others, uh, I, I think you could probably make it far more meaningful than if you just went on your own and got sideswiped by every cotton picking merchant in there in the streets of Jerusalem is what I've heard. Definitely. Uh, definitely. We avoid, we avoid some tourist traps and we, you know, there's lots of places that on TripAdvisor, they say, do you go to these places and you go there and like, what's the point of this? It's just because somebody said this is, you know, Simon's house. 
uh, you know, so we avoid all that as much as we can. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, I've been studying uh, James Tabor's materials and uh, I'm going to be having him on Monday night. We're going to be talking about his gospel of Mark, but he's constantly talking too about going over there to Israel and doing tours and uh, avoiding the traps and showing some of his own archaeological digs. He's one of the archaeologists that found the, the actual latrines uh, at Qumran and discussed the significance of that. So he's been doing some magnificent work on John the Baptist, which I will be reflecting on uh, here within the next oh, few days anyway. So tonight we have a really great discussion on these. I have always, uh, I mean, the first reading through James E. Talmadge, yeah, it's a watershed moment if you can even make it through. Uh, I did, and then what I did is I, I read it on my mission, took six months <laughs> to recover. <laughs> I confess it blew me away. His, his language is very scholarly, and yet uh, there... I, I don't know how else to describe this. I mean, correct me if you think I'm really going overboard here, but there is a, uh, what I would describe as a, a spiritual scholarly quality to his writings. So I agree. He's probably dated in many issues at this point in time, but my second time through Jesus the Christ, again, on my mission, and that was one of the books we were allowed to have back in 1979, and I was very grateful for that, and I took advantage of it, and I got through Jesus the Christ twice, but uh, it, it was just, it was fantastic, even though he's dated, and I often was just so enamored with this Jesus fellow who was just one step ahead all the time with all of his antagonists. I think Talmadge brought that out better than anyone else I've ever read on the Pharisees. And uh, so I am really looking forward to uh, your research into this, um, it's great having another New Testament expert and scholar to share all of your hard-earned knowledge with us. So I'm going to let you have at it and take away and teach us about what, where did this antagonism come from? Is it real? And how can we utilize this to help ourselves? Cool. Yeah, let's let's dive in. Um, I'll, I'll point to the last episode. So in mm-hmm. the future, when people are finding this, you're not going to know what's the last episode. So I, I guess what, Carrie, have them go to YouTube and type in backyard professor, Trevin Hatch, and then Pharisees, you know, yes. uh, and you, you know this one will come up. And, and then the last one, because and you're, all, you're also posting these on your website as well. I, I want to give a plug for your wonderful website where you have uh, Dr. Hatch. Sorry to interrupt you, but Dr. Hatch has some wonderful discussions and he's got some beautiful scenery in his videos that I don't have because I've never been to Israel. And he's talking about many, many New Testament issues. So uh, right. check out his website. It's well worth looking into. So, okay, that'll be the last time I yeah. interrupt you until next that, time. That channel is strangers in jerusalem youtube channel strangers in jerusalem yeah strangers we're, in jerusalem so everything i do here i'm i'm posting there you know uh just kind of a a dual you know shared episode so yeah you can Good. get them in any place 
the reason why I mentioned that episode is because it, th- you have to go back and watch that in order to really understand this one. I guess you don't have to, you'll understand it, but if people didn't get the last episode, they're going to be thinking right off the bat, wait a minute, Trevin is saying that Jesus and the Pharisees are cordial and the Pharisees are the good guys. I just had somebody uh, text me on, on the thing on Facebook Messenger or something and say, I saw that you I saw that you commented on something and said the Pharisees are the good guys. Well, there's all kinds of passages that say they're not, right? And so uh, that's what one of our one of last time we did the live show, what somebody got on there, Randall uh, Randall uh, Bell, right? He got on and said essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I can't repeat everything here, but I will show you this just to give a review. How do I uh, let's see? Can I share this screen real quick? Sure, absolutely. If I go to settings, present. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, present, share screen. And, and then it should take you to which screen you want to present. Just share your whole screen. Present, share screen, share screen, and now, okay, here we go. Okay, can you, can you see that, Terry, it's Pharisees? There we oh. go. Okay, I pulled this slide from that last episode as just a review. There's two two slides I want to show here as a review. All the data you can get in my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, you can also get it in that episode. But here's basically a summary of what the Pharisees are. What, what defines a Pharisee according to Josephus, combination of Josephus, Acts, the Gospels. And here, here this is. And I... I I wrote this up to compare Jesus and the Pharisees. So I say, like the Pharisees, Jesus was popular with the masses. The Pharisees are known for being religiously devoted and concerned about following Jewish law. Uh, The Pharisees, like the Pharisees, Jesus was viewed by many as a prophet. Right. We get that in the Gospels. And in Josephus says the Pharisees, people believed that they had divine foreknowledge. Uh, Like the Pharisees, Jesus believed in divine uh, providence, resurrection, angels, reward and punishment in the afterlife. Like the Pharisees, Jesus was known as a wise teacher of Jewish law. He also supported various purity rituals and washings, like the Pharisees. Uh, He was friendly to the public, like the Pharisees. We're talking about Jesus. He rejected a life of luxury, just like the Pharisees. This is all in Josephus. He was lenient in punishment, and this is very crucial. Josephus said Pharisees were the most lenient uh, in their punishments of all the other groups. Um, Jesus and the Pharisees despise the chief priests and the Sadducean establishment. So you, if you, even if you know these this, this set of criteria, you can compare it to the Gospels. And if something here doesn't make sense in the Gospels, you can think, okay, surely Trevin has dealt with this, or Steve Mason, it's in Josephus, and there's a, a lot of work that's been done to try to tease out um, what a, a typical or what the populace understood a Pharisee to be, Okay. Now, here is one other slide, and it's also, this is very important because, not, number one, it's not only more evidence that Pharisees and Jesus were cordial, most likely friendly to one another, but it also is a launching pad into today's discussion. So, uh, I guess most people will be watching this on YouTube, so you can see this, but if I release it on a Strangers in Jerusalem podcast, I'll just kind of walk through it. You had many instances in Luke where Pharisees invite Jesus to dinner as an honored guest. This is a custom in the in the classical world and early Jewish world where you invite people not to try to trap them and get them killed. We don't find examples of that. All of the data in Josephus, in Ben Sira, in the Gospels, all, all throughout the, the philosophers are doing this is these, this is a boundary marker. 
where you invite people into your home in a mealtime symposia. You would you would eat dinner, eat a meal, and then you would debate philosophy or debate Jewish law. In the Greco-Roman world, these banquets involved hosts, guests, servants, and there's also ceremony. And the host would bring people in, wash their feet or wash their hands. There's a certain type of ritual. They would have couches where they recline back. You know, they recline while they're discussing. And all of this is, is Greco-Roman banquet ritual. It's a form of worship. And this is an extension, as I say here up on the screen, it's an extension of the temple and the synagogue, where at those places you pray, you discuss Jewish law, you know, you, you worship in other ways, you immerse yourself ritually. And that's the same thing with the mealtime symposia or banquet is what we're calling it. The reason why I bring this up is because Jesus, number one, like I said, he's being invited into Pharisees' homes over and over. But then there's the discussion that they have, the symposia part. They eat dinner and then they go into a dining room and recline and debate Jewish law. And you can see in these, uh, in these examples in Luke, they have a debate. They're, they're always de they're asking questions and debating something. So what's the debate that they usually have? Carrie, do you, off the top of your head, do you know what, you happen to know what their debate is? At which time? All the times that he's with Pharisees. A lot of times he's with Pharisees in their home or they discuss. Well, it's uh, usually, it was usually eating with the sinners, wasn't it? Exactly. That's the main issue. So the, the, the discussion is who's I, I, the insider? I even read your end. <laughs> oh, it's on here? Okay. <laughs> that's right. It's on here. That's, that's right. Um, so in these discussions, he invites people and they say, Jesus, are you a friend? They say that. I think it's up here on the screen. Yeah. Are you a friend of these people? And Jesus says, and then he gives a parable. You know, you're not just supposed to invite friends and brothers, relatives, but also invite other people, you know, people who need, you know, need uh, a helping hand. So that's always the discussion. Okay. So then there's another time where they debate. Uh, a Pharisee asks again, who belongs in the group and who's outside of the group? And then he, he gives three parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, leave the 99, go to the lost sheep, find the lost one. And then the, the brother of the prodigal. And in again, the, the, the question is, who do we, when somebody removes themselves from outside the house of Israel, and then they come back, or even if they don't come back, how do we engage with them? And in that parable, if the kid comes back, the younger brother, and it's the older brother who's in the position of the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees ask him about this parable. They ask him about the question. And he says, look, you and I, you, you Pharisees, me, Jesus, we have to actually look out for those people who are trying to come back. And at the end of that parable, it's a mealtime, right? It's a banquet. Okay. And who doesn't go in? The older brother, because he doesn't believe that he should have such a banquet for his younger brother. Okay, it's over and over and over again, the same debate. So that's important to, for what we're going to talk about today. So let's get into this and I'll just show you this. I won't spend much time on this, but there's two factors that influence the writing of the Gospels. And there's lots of there's lots of details here and we'll just grind through it. The first one is pretty easy. This is just a snapshot. You can even pause your screen and look at it. But in the first century leading up to the Jewish-Roman War in 66, you have all these different incidences where there's kind of a, there's this relationship between Jews and Rome takes a hit. And as you go through the first century, it gets worse and worse and worse. So up here you have an incident in 19 CE where Jews are expelled from, uh, from Rome. In 49, uh, same thing, expelled by Claudius Caesar. In the 30s, 
Pilate uses funds from the temple treasury to pay for an aqueduct. And then there's a, a riot. He threatens people with daggers, like all his soldiers. In the late 40s and 50s, there's a huge riot during Passover. Uh, same thing in the, in the 50s, 60s. This happens over and over again. Okay. So the result is the Jewish-Roman War, which results in the destruction of the temple in 70. And I mention that because the Gospels are written after all that. So we have to keep in, keep that in mind. Okay, so I'll just stop sharing. All. And, and what else is really interesting here too, Dr. Hatch, is <clears throat> Paul's writings are the earliest. That, that's kind of interesting, isn't it, that... Uh, that we have a we have a set of writings that happened before the war, and now the gospels are and scholars have found ways to tell by the types of language, the imagery they're using, etc. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on why we can reliably date the gospels um, after the war, even though there are claims and and it's still open to discussion. So far as I know, about some of those. Uh, earlier fragments of Mark, they're trying to date them closer and closer. And I mean, we can understand why, but the other the other item I would just add, and this comes from my studying James Tabor's materials, is the uh, death of James, the brother of Jesus, happened there at the temple, I believe, 62 A.D. In the 60s. And Josephus actually says that it was his death that brought the destruction of the Jews, which is really interesting. So just, just an extra little item to show you that there, like you're saying, there was terrific tension. So, yeah. They're absolutely right. And if somebody wants, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it here, but if somebody wants uh, a brief explanation, I have a video, such video on Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel on the dating of the Gospels. And essentially you have some people trying to argue that it's before the 60s, but it's, it's very difficult because even uh, some research as of late, um, Steve Mason uh, was on Myth Vision, got a whole three hour YouTube episode where he argues that Luke knew Josephus. Yeah. And if, if, the author, if the author of Luke knew Josephus, then Luke is writing into the early second century. And there's other, I mean, go, go check out that video. But for the most part, all of these authors seem to know. And we'll talk about it today. They seem to have late first century issues on their mind post-destruction, which a lot of these things, as you'll see today, don't make sense in the late 20s. They absolutely make sense in the 70s. And people might say, yeah, but isn't Jesus prophesying when he says the temple is going to be destroyed? Um, and the short answer is if a prophecy, if he did, he might he might have prophesied of that. But if he did prophesy of it, the fact that it's in the Gospels means it's already happened because we know if. 30 and 40, 50 years have passed and the temple's still standing there, you risk making Jesus look like a false prophet and you risk making your, your movement look ridiculous if a major teaching of your prophet is saying Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, right? The fact that it's in the Gospels and there's a knowledge of the, of the, of the destruction means they're probably written after. And there's other data points, okay? So... That's an excellent point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And and I'll echo that Steve Mason. Uh, I've been watching a lot of his videos on Derek Lambert's Smith Vision, along with James Tabor. And boy, they have something else. But we've got we've got something they don't. We have Dr. Hatch here. So <laughs> here we are. And, and I've communicated with Steve Mason on some things. He's, he's amazing. He's I'm going to try to. Yeah. I'm going to have James on Monday, but I haven't talked to Steve yet. But 
he's retired now. So yeah, he's retired. He's made a good life for himself. So. Okay, so I, I said I was gonna not share it anymore, but I, I forgot about this. This I, I need oh, it's people, all good. It's if I just read it, people might get confused. You got to watch it too, um, but because it's kind of complicated. So James Dunn, he's an emeritus professor, uh, New Testament University of Durham, and here's what he writes. I've got the citation in the book, but here's what he writes that explains what's going on. And he says, "That's one of his books, and it's mammoth. It's like what." 1300 pages man i have not made my way off and he's got another one just this size as well he just recently passed he really recently passed on so thank you james dunn for all of your fabulous research he was brilliant he was brilliant but here's here's what he says as you can see on the screen here's what he says about this issue of the jews and early christians he says the complexity the complexity of John's treatment, Gospel of John, the complexity of John's treatment of the Jews, quote the Jews, is best explained by the historical situation confronting the author of John. There is a large scale consensus that John was writing at around the end of the first century during the period after the destruction of the temple in 70, when the rabbis slash Pharisees began the lengthy process of rebuilding the nation around the Torah and of defining Judaism more carefully in the face of other claimants to the uh, to the heritage of the second temple of Jewish system, right? Including Christianity. So temple is destroyed. And now you have this the identity crisis. Who are we as a Jewish people without the temple? John's writing after that. And James Dunn says that John is writing in this war between identity and who gets included, who's excluded. Okay. So let's continue. Okay. In these circumstances, it is very likely that John's use of the Jews, in quotations, this is Jewish authorities, refers to the local Jewish leadership who identified with the objectives of the rabbis. But it is also likely that John's usage reflects the claim beginning to be made at that time by the rabbis to be the only legitimate heirs to pre-70 Judaism, to be, in fact, the Jews. At the same time, however, there were other ethnic Jews who must have been caught in the middle the heirs of much more diverse forms of late Second Temple Judaism caught between the competing claims of the rabbis and others, including the believers in Jesus, right? So there's this tension, as he's saying, between the rabbis slash Pharisees who are trying to define our religion without the temple. That the whole, it's not even religion, that's anachronistic. The our entire political religious system, whatever you want to call it, is the temple and our law. We don't have the temple anymore. So what does Judaism look like? And there's competing voices, and some people get caught in the middle, including the believers in Jesus, the Jesus movement, which is what he's saying. Okay. Yeah, and so, so we have we have the Gnostic sects as well. Uh, no, we're talking about a hundred CE, correct? The end of the first century. I just want to say that for the audience's sake, so that they know what time scale we're talking about. The hundred CE. So, okay. Yep, that's right. Okay, so that you, that has to make sense. There you got the Jewish-Roman conflict. It starts the war, and then you have the 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 wrestle with what this identity crisis of what we are. Okay, that's the first thing. The second is the conflict. Second issue that influenced the writing of the Gospels is the conflict within the Jesus movement. You got conflict outside. You have conflict between the outside and the Jesus movement, and you have conflict within the Jesus movement. So you see how it kind of gets complicated. And here's some evidence of this. You have in, I'll just tell, you know, so you guys can pause it and look it up if you want the references. But in 
you have places where John refers to your law, the author of John's writing, and Jesus says, your law, talk to the Pharisees, and as if he's an outsider. That, that, that it's odd. That, that would be odd for Jesus in the 20s, who was raised as a Jew. He's, he even says, I've come to teach the Jews. I am a Jew. I'm going to the temple. All the apostles are going to the temple, even in Acts, after he dies, are going to the temple sacrificing. So it's odd that only in John, Jesus is saying, your law says this, but I'm saying this. Okay, so he's kind of being made an outsider. He, he should be saying our law. Exactly. It shouldn't be in a way. That's a fascinating insight. I like that. That's interesting. And and there's some other examples, like in John 9, 22, um, it says the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. John 9, 22, you have this phrase, being put out of the synagogue. Okay. In John 12, 42, it says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Okay, another that that's strange because Pharisees are not in control of the synagogues. We have we actually have archaeological uh, remains that uh, an inscription in found in 1919 of a, of a synagogue in Jerusalem, and it's the priests who run that. And there's some other data around. We don't have Pharisees running the synagogue. So the fact that later, way later, John is writing that he puts the Pharisees in this position of power. And that the priests are following Jesus, but now they're, they're fear this, the fear that the Pharisees will throw them out of the synagogues. That is absolutely not a, a 20s or 30s or 40s reality. That's a 90s. It's a 100, 110, right? Yeah, this is part of that detective work I was saying that scholars were utilizing. Thank you for bringing these details out. That is so fascinating. Yeah, we got one more, John 16.2. You guys can look this up, but it says, I have said uh, these, I, Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who, who kill you will think that they're doing so by offering worship to God. Again, this notion that there's this separation, we're going to be thrown out of the synagogues. In other words, out of the Judaic system that we're used to, and they're also going to try to kill you. The Gospel of Matthew also seems to res be responding to these conflicts in the late first century between Jewish Christians and other groups of Jews. Okay, so here's some little bit of evidence that here's the late first century conflicts. Okay, so um, I've got a question. The question that I ask, I can ask you, Carrie, or, or the audience, you can think about it. What happened? If my thesis is right from the last video, that Pharisees and Jesus were cordial, they both came from the same kind of Pharisaic system. A lot of the of people followed rulings of the Pharisees. They all hated the temple establishment. Okay, if I'm right on all that, and if Steve Mason's right on all that, and a lot of other scholars, then the question is, what happened between Jesus's death and the destruction of the temple? So we're talking about 30 to 70. In that 40-year period, something happened that turned the Jewish Christians and the Pharisees against each other which in turn shaped how the Gospels of Matthew and to some extent John were written. That 40-year that period, something happened. Okay, so let's walk through the timeline before we actually get into the Gospels, and we'll kind of go through the history. So if you remember, Jesus dies, and about a decade later, sometime in the next decade, Peter receives a revelation that he should take the Gospel to the Gentiles. This is in Acts 10, if you guys remember this. What happens is, is that he leaves that right after he has that vision, he has a mill. Okay, here's another mill time 
setting with Cornelius. Yeah. Yeah. He eats it. He eats at his house in Acts. This is Acts 10, 11 through 46. And then you get to the next chapter in Acts 11. He goes back to Jerusalem and he and it says in Acts 11 that the circumcised believers of Jesus, whoever those were, probably Pharisees or whoever or the original apostle, Peter, James, those guys, somebody criticizes Peter for eating among uncircumcised men. Oh, they sure with them. do. They sure do. Well, it always goes back to those meals. I, I really love that you brought that detail out because now all these stories I'm realizing and critical issues arise at mealtime, don't they? This is fascinating. So it's the, it, so Peter's revelation is important for this whole discussion because it centers, like you said, on food and the mealtime Jewish culture. And while Peter's, the, the actual event is that while Peter's food it says his food is being prepared. He falls into a trance or like basically sleep and he sees animals descending from heaven. And he and then God asks him to eat this food. And if you remember, his response is, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything of, of that food. Right. So, again, there's a little where people think that Jesus just did away with the law. Here's another little statement that shows that he didn't. If he clearly did away with the law and says none of that matters. Why after long after his death, Peter is still saying, that's that's nuts. There's no way I'd be eating that food. I'm a Jew. Good point. Right? Very, very good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what does all this tell us? It highlights that even though the broader issue was the Gentile inclusion into the Jesus movement, which we'll talk about. There's that's 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 a big issue. Who belongs, who doesn't belong? But even that aside, there's a salient concern over mealtime customs. This is the precise issue that Jesus repeatedly debated with Pharisees, right? According to the authors of the Gospels. So the, this account in Acts 10 indicates that even before his revelation in the late 30s, Peter was fully in agreement with what the Pharisees would have taught. Fully in agreement, right? All the way up till, till now. Okay. And when Peter goes back and they criticize him, he's like, what do you mean? You ate with a, non, a non-Jew? That right there is right there is probably the start of a long conflict that lasts clear into the, the late first century, a 30, 40 year conflict. So let me, let's, let's talk about this, this conflict. Sometime after that, it's probably five to 10 years later, we get all this data in Acts 15 and Galatians 2 and 3 and Galatians 5. So what happens is Paul's going around the Roman empire and he's now teaching non-Jews. He's pretty much been rejected by Jews because Jesus is dead. Jews aren't going to have a Messiah who died. Paul starts teaching Gentiles and brings them in. This comes to a head in Antioch. This is 300 miles north up in Syria. And what happens is Paul's upset that Pharisees or certain people from Jerusalem came to Antioch to tell the people who lived there that they need to be circumcised Mm -hmm. and they need to follow Jewish law. Okay. The reason why I think these are Pharisees is because Acts 15 says the same thing. James says people from Jerusalem, people here from Jerusalem went to Antioch and told everybody that they have to follow the law, the whole law, in order to be saved. And up in Antioch, Paul is furious because Peter and Barnabas follow these people from Jerusalem who come and say, you guys can't eat together. You got to follow the law. You Jews have to eat over there. Gentiles have to eat over there. And Paul and Peter and Barnabas decide to eat with the Jews and not the Gentiles. 
Mm. And Paul is with the Gentiles and it infuriates Paul. And in Genesis, or sorry, Genesis, in Galatians 2, he calls them hypocrites. Same word that's called, used against Pharisees, calls them hypocrites, right? Mm -hmm. So this whole problem, then everything hits the fan. They all have to go to Jerusalem and have the council. This is, we find this in Acts 15. The hard part about all this is these gospel, all these writings are not historical. Like they're not reliable. In some ways they're reliable, in some ways they're not. So you have to put all the pieces together. And the reason why I say well, that is well, because... They're not, they're not in order altogether in the nice, tidy story either. Because right. Paul's view, you have Acts, and then then all of a sudden you have several other New Testament books. And then all of a sudden you get Paul in Galatians, and you wonder, wow, what's he so mad about? That may hark back several books earlier in situations we find in Acts. So if you was to read the New Testament straight through, it's kind of tough when it's it's spread throughout, kind of jumping back and forth between the different books. And in the meantime, you're getting Paul's high Christology and soteriology, and then something else is happening over in Jerusalem. And so, yeah. That's right. And if you lined up, you even took Luke and lined up all of the, the travels of Paul, like chronological order, here's everything. And then you line up Paul, uh, Paul's, what he says about himself all throughout his, all throughout his letters. It, they don't match. So it's you really have to put the piece together and like really try to figure out what's going on rather than just say, well, it says here that, you know, Jesus told everybody to go convert Gentiles or, or Pharisees are bad. It's, it's way more complicated than that. And so this is what we're trying to, to, to flesh out. Okay, so they go to Jerusalem, and in, in Acts 15, we read about this council, and it's, it says the Greek word is stasis, which means there's the dissension. It's a riot. That word means a rebellion or riot. It's not just a discussion like we would have like at some board meeting where there's a disagreement. Like it's, it's a riot, right? Now, now this, you're saying that's the Greek, uh, but this is not how it's translated. This isn't the impression I ever received all the way even up into and through my entire mission either. So right. the translation is kind of misleading here. Misleading, yeah. And you have to read into it and you can, and sometimes words are translated where like, yeah, there's a disagreement, but it's a type of disagreement. It's very, very intense, okay? So what happens? You have Paul stands up and we have to pay attention to the people who get the microphone, so to speak. Who gets to speak? Those are the leaders of the Jesus movement. So Paul stands up and he says, Gentile converts must only be required to immerse. And then there should be no distinction between Gentiles and followers of Jesus. That's it. Like, it's the most bare bones thing. James argues at that same council that, well, let me back up. Pharisees, in Acts 15, 5, Pharisees, it says Pharisees, Pharisee believers in Jesus Get the microphone. Now, if you're Paul and you get to speak your mind, and if you're James, you get to speak your mind, and you're Peter and Pharisees, what does that tell us? It means that Pharisees, we don't know how many, but there's a lot of Pharisees that follow Jesus. If they didn't, then why would you give Pharisees, why would you give them the microphone? Why would you give them the floor in this, you know, in this sort of court type setting? You wouldn't. It means there's a sizable following of Pharisee, you know, Pharisaic followers of Jesus. Okay, so what do these guys say? They say that Gentile converts that Paul's bringing in must be circumcised, must be immersed, and must observe the entire law, everything. That's who we are. We're a G, we're, this, this is our Mosaic law going all the way back. We're not bringing in pagans for no reason. Like, what are you doing? This is a Jewish group. 
Now, another reinforcement of this too, uh, Trevin, to, to help bolster your point, not that it needs it, but uh, Jesus himself, it makes sense that the Pharisees are taking this, uh, what appear to us to be a hard line, because Jesus himself said, I am not come to destroy the law. I'm going to fulfill it, every jot and tittle. So the impression that would give uh, to his followers, whether, regardless of what station they had in their culture or life, um, we're going by the law of Moses here, folks. And that's, yeah, that's okay, it's awesome you bring that up because Pharisees probably said, even our Jesus, even our leader Jesus said that we should follow the law. And when Christians hear, like, we're just spitting in the wind. This is going to happen in 500 years from now. You're going to still have Christians say, didn't Jesus do away with the law? Because it says right here, he fulfilled it. No, the Greek word and the English word does not mean that you've some sort of, you, it's like, like a prophecy that where you fulfilled it. And now it's kind of done and we can move on. No, it, to fulfill means to carry out and live. You know, it's like if you go to work and your boss says you need to fulfill. Say that, say that again. That's a very important. So you're saying both the Greek and the English here uh, of the idea of Jesus saying, I'm here to fulfill the law. In fact, he said every jot and every tittle. And if I understand the Greek right, that's like the little dot over the I and crossing your T. I mean, he means in exquisite detail, not necessarily the traditions of the elders. That's what he was fighting against so often, according to the gospel accounts. But this law of Moses was a big deal to Jesus. So this idea of fulfilling the law isn't the image I've always had, Trevin, is here's the law of Moses. Jesus comes along and he says, we're not going to stop short. We're going to fulfill it. Okay, now that's done. Thank you. Let's go yeah. on. And I don't even know what that's right. the wrong. That's the wrong that's, view you're saying? That's what everybody says, but that doesn't even make sense. I don't even know what that means. It's because people have, it's the word. It's the choice of word in the translation that messes people up. A better translation would be, I have not come to make the law obsolete or put an end to the law, but to live the law, right? So Fair it's when, it's like, it, and it's pretty simple. Even when you go, like you get a new job. And your new boss hands you the job description. He says, you need to fulfill all these tasks every day. And you're like, oh, I don't need to do that. I fulfill Like, it doesn't make sense. Fulfilling I did that yesterday. Yeah. And right. I want you to do it today and today. Yeah. I have that issue at my work. So now nah, that's wonderful. Good illustration. Okay. I so like it. The Pharisees are probably saying that. They're probably like, you guys are nuts. Paul, what are you saying? Like, even Jesus said we have to follow the law. And he's saying he would come to Jesus. Okay. So that's Paul on one side, Pharisees on the other. James, the brother of Jesus, a Jew, a leader, you know, one of the leaders of the Jesus movement, he stands up and he says that he's kind of in the middle where he says Jews need to live the law. The Jew, you know, the Jewish leader, the Jewish members of the Jesus movement, they have to live the law. And then Gentiles have to do certain things. They don't have to live the whole law, but they have to be circumcised. They have to be immersed and they must follow certain key injunctions in Leviticus. And one of them is like, you have to abstain from food that has been sacrificed to idols. You have to abstain from eating blood. You, you can't uh, engage in any act of fornication. Um, no eating meat of strangled it. Like it's all going back to certain aspects of Jewish law that must be followed. You know, there's all kinds of laws, but he's like fornication, what we eat. Remember, here's all this other mealtime stuff again. Um, so fornication, what we eat, circumcision, because that's what, I mean, that goes all the way back to Abraham, right? So he's kind of in the middle. 
And it seems like they followed Paul. They decided, okay, Paul's right. I'm not sure that's the case because you, what we have is then Paul goes out into, he, he leaves again and he's furious, absolutely furious. And you think, what is he mad about? And so let, let's, let me give you a little bit. of Especially if they compromised and gave him some of the things he was asking for. Right. Uh, and before and before we talk about Paul, I actually I have this little quote up on the on my screen. It's from the Babylonian Talmud where I mean, this is late, but it's reporting on a discussion that two first century sages were debating. So listen to this. This is the, the, the sages. This is their words with regard to a convert who was circumcised but did not immerse. Rabbi Eliezer says that this is a convert. He missed one, but we still count this guy as a convert. With regard to one who immerses but is not circumcised, Rabbi Yehoshua says, this is a convert. If you do either one, you're a convert. But then the rabbis, the body, the body of the rabbis say whether he immersed but was not circumcised or whether he was circumcised but not immersed, he is not a convert until he does both. So they're still having those debates. They're, you know, they're and the debates. Babylonian Talmud, we're, ta we're talking five, 600 A.D., aren't we? Time it's really late. Yep, it's they're, really they're telling an earlier situation, yes, but by the time it was compiled, that's why you're saying it's, and that doesn't necessarily mean late works are useless or or not worth reading. You know, but they can have earlier. That's very interesting. Yeah, they're right. So even even whole hog on all of it. Yeah, even 500 years later, the point still stands that Jews at this time, right. whether it's first, second, third, fourth century, you know, in that kind of ballpark, way way away from where we are. They're having these wrestles, and it's not just that passage. There's tons of them on who is a Jew, and there's, so this debate at the Jerusalem Council is not strange. Like that's expected to have that kind of debate, okay? But the result of that Jerusalem Council decision is that now what was once a highly Pharisaic group or Jewish group, right, during the days of Jesus, is now this becoming this strange conglomeration of Gentiles who believe in Jesus and Jews who believe in Jesus and then Jews follow the law Gentiles don't and literally the only connection between them is a belief in Jesus it makes a really strange really strange uh, dynamic okay this is why the Pharisees are so mad because their entire lifestyle clear back 700 years even if we're dating the law late portions of the law in the 8th century or 7th century, we're talking about a 500-year-old, maybe even an 800-year-old set of laws. And all of a sudden, we're like going to do away with all that? This is like they, this is absolute madness. Like they've been furious at Paul, who used to be a Pharisee. And so you can see that rift between Paul, who was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, and between Peter and Paul, it just exploded. Okay. There are passages in, I'll just read a couple to you here, that number one, circumcision is a sign of God's covenant with Israel. And in Leviticus, in sorry, in uh, Genesis 17, it says this. Um, it says that all those who are of Israel has to be circumcised. And then God commanded all foreigners who wish to enter the covenant to be circumcised. Otherwise, quote, they shall be cut off from this people. So it's, it's Israelites and also foreigners who want to be part, numbered with Israel. Okay. Uh, however, uh, let, let's keep in mind, Abraham is before the law of Moses. 
Right, right. But this is also in Leviticus. Genesis is written way after. Genesis right, is written right. way yeah. after. Yeah, yeah. The composition is way late after the Babylonian captivity. So. Right. So the writers of Genesis and the redactor and or the redactors of Genesis lost fully. Like there's certain, uh, you know, legal statutes. Okay. Uh, also in Exodus twelve forty eight, it says that any foreigner who um, who comes among covenant Israel and wants to participate in Passover and to eat with Israelites must be circumcised. So this this mealtime thing again. Mealtime thing. Yeah. Okay. So all these people who are saying Pharisees are nuts, like all these other people, we need to be inclusive and we need to bring in Gentiles and all these people who didn't want to. These these Pharisees are just um, I don't know, like whatever the pejorative. Of course, like if we were there at that time when we were Jews, we'd have been, except for Paul, we'd have been like this. I hate what's happening to my my group like you know what, what is happening to us i don't recognize any of this what paul is doing to us right so okay let me let me think um this is fascinating thank you for sharing all this the, what what interesting what an interesting overview of it all this this is new testament history and it wasn't just actually smooth and spiritual good going for everyone at all and not all of the priesthood quorums just simply agreed with each other they were very serious fighting arguing i should say not but well later on those became christian wars which was horrifying but yeah that's right you know and one of the one of the passages that people point to is like they'll say all this stuff in Acts, they'll, they'll say to me, I don't understand what you're saying, because clearly in, in Matthew 28, Jesus tells them to go into every nation and bring in converts and baptize them. And it says baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, like it's, it has all that. That's the, you know, and that's the Great Commission. Yeah, so where's the beef? What's, what's all this argument about? Yeah. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that either that's not historical and there's a, there's a, that's not a historical statement. And the reason why scholars will say that is because those very words in the name of the father, son, a lot of that is a phrase that is a second century phrase. Like the way it's written is a second century phrase. Okay. But even if we say, no, nah, okay, that's kind of weak. I, I believe that Jesus really say it, said that. Okay. Even if we take that view, he wasn't clear. Fine. Maybe he did say go throughout the, the, the empire and to every nation and bring people in. Is he talking about Jews? Go find all the Jews because that's who he came to. Or they, they are in the diaspora. That's in the diaspora. And even, even if he is talking about Gentiles, let's say, okay, let's say he's talking about Gentiles. Is Did he say they have to come be converted to Judaism and follow our, you know, because Jesus and all the apostles were following the Jewish system. So it's not clear. Like, there's no answers to those questions. And clearly there's no answers because they're having these debates and fighting about it. If, if Jesus was clear and says, I'm, I'm specifically talking about anybody, not just Jews, and they don't need to be become Jews, then it, none of this would be a problem. So Jesus wasn't clear. and Or Matthew's making this up later, saying, as a pro-Pauline writer of a gospel, looking back, saying, Jesus clearly told us all this. All you guys who disagree, you're whacked. Jesus totally... Jesus clearly said this, right? You see, so you see the problem with that. Okay, so Paul is furious. We'll go to, let me just pull up the screen here for you. Sure, yeah. Let's periodically pull this up just so you can see. I just put, uh, I, I listed this out on 
Paul's not satisfied. If they, if the Jerusalem council agreed with Paul, everything should be fine, right? It's not fine because here in Galatians and elsewhere, you can clearly see uh, the issue. So those who cannot say on the screen, we've got Galatians one where Paul is adamant in his letter that he was not sent by humans. This, this gospel, his gospel is not by human origin. And he did not go up. He did not get it from Jerusalem. Like he makes that point. I didn't get it from the people in Jerusalem. And then he calls the leaders of the church. He said that they contributed nothing to me. This is in the next chapter. So I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't get anything from them. They contributed nothing to me. And then he says, when I did finally go to Jerusalem, after three years, I only stayed for two weeks and I only visited one or two apostles. And then he says, quote, I did not see any other apostles. So this is strange. Why am I, why am I mentioning this? It's strange because why is Paul so worried that his audience is going to think that he got his gospel from Jerusalem, that he's yucking it up with the, the, the guys over in, in Jerusalem? They would, they would not like that because this is after the Jerusalem council when there's been this rift where some people in Jerusalem are saying Gentiles have to convert to Judaism or they have to do certain things. And Paul's saying no. And so there's already this rift between the Jerusalem leadership and Paul. So now when Paul's going back out all over the Roman Empire, he's like, don't worry. Those guys, they're so-called, he calls them so-called apostles. They contributed nothing to me. Um, when, even when I went there, I didn't stay very long. So guys, don't, don't worry about it. There's another part in another place where he says, if they're so obsessed with circumcision, then I hope they slip at the knife and accidentally castrate themselves. Yeah. Right? Ow. I mean, wow, can you can you say insult the brethren any more strongly? And the I reason mean, why and he's, he calls he's, them super so-called super apostles also does right? he's, really, he's really slamming them here. Yep, you get he, the impression his own authority is kind of under threat, don't we? That's absolutely right. He's clearly worried about something, and and we have I these ideas that people from Jerusalem are following or beating him to or sending letters or beating him to these other places, probably Pharisee people, because Paul keeps talking about these circumcised people. If they want to come preach circumcision. And it, also in Philemon chapter three, he says that he calls them dogs. The people in Jerusalem, these are his own people. He's not talking about someone else. He's saying that they're dogs, they're evil workers, and they mutilate the flesh. This is a, this is about circumcision. Okay. Um, I've got a few, okay, First Thessalonians, he's angered that they have tried to hinder us from speaking to Gentiles. They in Jerusalem tried to hinder us from speaking to Gentiles so that they might be saved. Well, why is he saying that if the Jerusalem council decided to go with Paul? That's, that's an after-the-fact interpretation. There's this riot, and it's still not worked out. We just, as Christians, look back after the fact and say, oh, yeah, they sided with Paul because there, there he went. He went off, and he kept, he kept bringing Gentiles in, but it's not that clear. They probably didn't come to a good agreement, a, a solid agreement, because he's furious, calling him names. Okay, then he says, and you can see here, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For it has been reported to me that there are quarrels among you people, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Peter. All right. So, again, he's, he's admitting, showing outright that there's this faction. This rift started these factions. You have the Gentile at the top of the screen, Gentile inclusive faction of the Jesus movement and a Jewish exclusive faction of the Jesus movement. That we're only Jews. No, we're including Gentiles. And those are the two camps. And we see it all throughout. Okay. Those who are circumcised, those who aren't. Okay. So then um, now 
that's the stage reset. And now, and the gospels are not written yet. Okay. Now we bring in, now we bring in the gospels and we have to keep two things in mind. The gospels are written after the Jerusalem council and all of the gospels seem to be Pauline texts or proponents of Pauline Christianity, a Gentile inclusive faction. Okay. So let me just give, uh, before we dive into the text and it'll blow your mind how one of the titles for this, you know, for this thing could be uh, why Matthew hated Pharisees and Peter. Why the author of Matthew hated Pharisees and Peter. That's what I could have titled this. Instead, we went. Now, now, wait, we went. A wait, a, wait a minute. Hold on. Just you might. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to look ahead here. But for 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 you to say, uh, why does Matthew hate the Pharisees and Peter? It's Matthew 16, 16 through 19. That has Jesus say, dude, you're it. You're the rock. I'm giving you my keys. And all that, I'm giving you the ceiling power. So this is going to be intriguing. I'm just saying that was yeah, the I'll first thing that popped into my head. So this is, you've got me, you've got me. I want to hear this. <laughs> I'll show you. Okay. So a few things to keep in mind. Um, well, let me, let me show you this data. Um, in fact, you can see the screen still, right? Do, do you want me to turn on the screen? Oh, enter the gospels. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at this. Did you guys see the last screen? You guys see all this? If not, no, I didn't. I didn't have it up. It's okay. You explained that very okay. Now here, here, the audience can pause right here pause. and and reread through that. Yeah, that was excellent discussion. I apologize. I shouldn't have had that turned off. So, oh, it's all good. So, yeah, they, 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 I just wanted to give them a snapshot of what um, you know. All sure, this. sure. Yeah, that's. And again, I just want to point out. Uh, go back to that real quick, Trev, and if you would, what I said earlier is that last one. Um, we've got Galatians 1, then we're jumping to Galatians 5, and then 1 Thessalonians 2.16, and 1 Corinthians 1. So it's not like you can get this entire story from just reading in the New Testament like you do a regular book. This is kind of somewhat scattered and all. So that's why this presentation is so wonderful, is because we're, we're kind of getting the Reader's Digest version in a, a more chronological order, because while all of this has been going on, we still don't have the Gospels. And yet that's the first thing we see in the New Testament. Right. So we assumed, well, this is how it happened. And then Paul came along and changed stuff. We kind of got that backwards chronologically. It's weird how they put the New Testament together. So, right. And okay. So, okay. Yeah, and now let's. Uh, I'll show you this screen. A couple things to keep in mind before we actually dive into the Gospels. And here's a few bullet points. So you have Romans and Gentiles, and this is key. If you're, so let me just go through this, and then we'll kind of tie it together. Sure. Tie to the Gospels. So the question I have up here that I ask my students is: If you were a Jew during the first century after the destruction of the temple who wanted to write about Jesus, would you make Romans the villains of the story? The answer is no, absolutely no. No, because of what we've seen before with the, the you know, Jewish Roman relations. So there's all that. But also now you have Rome targeting Christians. OK, so Rome was at war with Jews about a decade before that. And then thousands of Jews were slaughtered. Now, in the 60s, you have Nero Caesar blaming Christians for a large fire that broke out in Rome and he needed a scapegoat. So he blamed them. He ordered Christians to be crucified, torn apart by dogs, and their bodies used as torches to light the city. Extremely, wow. extremely gruesome, right? <sighs> you also have Paul, Peter, and James killed in the 60s 
by most likely by Rome. And Jesus has already been killed, but way before that, by Rome. Okay, so not only were the authors of the Gospels, as I say here, or and their audience, a lot of them were Jewish, authors were Jewish, but they were also Christian. It's possible that Luke wasn't Jewish, but by and large, you have these Christian Jewish texts. So you're caught between a rock and a hard place. It's kind of like Josephus. He has to write by convincing Rome that the Jews aren't so bad and convincing Jews that Rome is not so bad. It's the yeah. same thing here. You, you, if you're writing after 70 and you're a Jew and you're a Christian, you cannot write a gospel of Jesus without offending somebody or changing the story. You can't just write the story. You, and, it's, yeah. and it's safer to yell at the Jews than it is the Romans because the Romans never lost and they were still mighty, mighty powerful when these gospels were written. I'm just adding that as a footnote for real Rome never lost. Right. Against That's the right. Jews. That's right. So let me all the way up into the Bar Kokhba 128 AD. I mean, they never lost. So yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So with all that, here, if we now get to the Gospels, and now it makes sense of here are Romans and Gentiles portrayed in the Gospels. How are they portrayed? Well, here's a whole list. As I say here, the ruthless monster Pilate becomes a nice guy and an ally in the Gospels. He was absolutely ruthless. Philo says it. Josephus talks about him. He was rash. Um, he was angry, vindictive. And there's no way he's the way he's portrayed in Matthew. It's not going to happen. He's not going to say, oh, this guy didn't do anything, and he's, you know, let's let him go. There's not a chance, right? But in the, God, in the Gospels, he's, he's flipped. Also, the, uh, in the Gospel of John, the Jews cry out, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. That's odd to me. A whole group of Jews. Oh, we're friends of the emperor. We love the emperor. You know, um, it's possible they, they said that, but you can see a pattern. Then in John 19, we have no king but Caesar. Um, in Mark, a Gentile woman. It's a Gentile woman who seeks out Jesus. In Matthew, it's a Gentile, the, the, the Magi, who recognize Jesus as king of the Jews. It's not the Jews who recognize. It's Gentile people, non-Jews. These are Gentile gospels, pro-Gentile inclusive gospels. And you also have in Matthew, Jesus tells a Roman centurion who believes in him, truly, I tell you, no one in Israel, none of those Jews, no one in Israel has as much faith as you, a non-Jew, you know, Gentile. In Mark, after Pilate tries to save Jesus, it's a Roman centurion who recognizes him as, he says, truly this man is God's son. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Roman soldier. You even have in Luke, even though Luke's my favorite gospel, there's some crumbs that fall into Luke, and he still kind of has this. The Romans are forgiven for killing Jesus. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, right? But I put, mm -hmm. little, I put this little bullet point here that some ancient manuscripts don't have that in Luke. They, there's the part that says, Father, forgive them for they know what they're doing is not there. Okay. Right. Either way, you have some Christians, whether it's Luke himself writing 40 years later or some other Christian in the second century adding this in, it's, the result is the same. Jews are being blamed because we've already separated ourselves from Judaism and we are living in a Roman Empire converting Roman citizens and you know, other, other people. So, of course, we're going to say these kinds of things, right? And then in Matthew 10, Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and to flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. This does not fit 
a 20s or 30s reality, not it doesn't fit a 40s reality. This is absolutely in the fact that he mentions Gentiles and you're going to be pulled in governors and kings again way late after the temple is destroyed. And it's constantly demonizing Jews and propping up and giving giving a hat tip to every possible Gentile you can give a hat tip to every centurion, you know, the Magi everywhere. Okay. So that's, that, 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 that's a fantastic uh, group of scriptures to make us go back and look at and try to ask better questions than we've asked in our lives of uh, just what is going and why, why are they writing in this manner? This is, this is just fascinating. Excellent detective work. I so love let's, it. let's push it along. So we did, we did the Romans and Gentiles. Now let's look at how the original apostles, James, like a lot of these, Peter, a lot of these guys, how are they portrayed in the Gospels? Well, but even before we read the Gospels and look at this, we can say, well, they probably hated them because they're Pauline. Paul hated them. Or we'd expect to see something like that. Well, let's go through it. So you have here, Paul suggests that the leaders of the Jewish faction, and this is Peter, James, John, were reluctant to let the Gospels, to the Gospel go to the Gentiles. And he says here in Galatians 2 that they only agreed after they recognized the grace that God had given to Paul. In other words, Peter, James, and John would never have let you Gentiles come in and accept Jesus, except if it were not for them recognizing God's grace. They had to be forced, right? Okay, so then in Mark 4, the apostles show a lack of faith during a storm. And Jesus says in Mark, have you still no faith? In Mark 6, two chapters later, when Jesus walks on water, the apostles do not recognize him. And it says their hearts are hardened. In Mark oh, 8. Can I interject real quick? This this brought up an idea. Um, uh, in James Tabor's course on Mark, uh, it, it was the way he uh, approached the, the gospel. Um, it was really remarkable how the first few confessions of Jesus being the Messiah or else being identified as the Son of God or holy or whatever came from demons in the Gospel of Mark. Right. The yes. demons were portrayed as recognizing Jesus, but not the Jews. So that fits in with this thing beautifully, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's just so fast. And he kept them quiet. He said, quiet, cease, quit, come out of him, get out of here. Isn't that so interesting? At, at every turn, centurions, the magi, non-Jewish women, demons, everybody, it's like this, it's like it's almost like Jonah, this satire. Everything's now, yeah, the, the Gentiles get it, you Jews, you're you just not getting this. Right. So here's yeah. in Mark in chapter eight to go along with what you're saying, and James Tabor, Jesus says, Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have ears and fail to see? Sorry, do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? You have little faith. Do you not perceive? How could you fail to perceive? This is this big, long, like five, you know, five. Constantly. I mean, I mean, honestly, Mark makes Jesus's own Jewish disciples out to com be complete dorks, just morons, dunderheads. They don't get the simplest things. And and, and then that uh, the theme, you know, uh, what's his nose on the messianic secret from. Right, right, right. From the Jews, he he didn't want them to know that secret. It's fascinating, right? Yeah, from Albert Schweitzer, the Messianic secret. 
Yep. Um, okay, Mark 9, in the very next chapter, a man approaches Jesus' disciples and asks them to heal his son, but they could not. And then Jesus calls them faithless and say, how much longer should I be with you guys? Like at every turn, he's furious at them. And then in Matthew 17, so that's a lot in Mark, but then in Matthew 17, he's, um, sorry, does this, I messed this up. It's in, I put Matthew, but it's in Mark, right? Mark. Mm-hmm. He says, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? That might be Matthew. And, um, and this makes sense too, Trevin, because, because Mark is the earliest first gospel. And so he's closest to all of this argy-bargy that's been going on for the last 40 years within the Judaist, between the the so-called pillars of the church, as Paul calls them, and Paul. So it makes sense why Mark appears to be so, well, is it fair to say he's just biased against the Jewish viewpoints? Against yeah, the and, Jewish if he, and if he's writing in the 70s or 80s or whenever he's writing, okay, yeah. this is... This is about 30 years after that big schism where they couldn't decide who belongs, who doesn't belong. They have this identity crisis. Paul's mad. Pharisees are mad. Right. This is this. They're having they're continuing those debates and a lot of this rhetoric that we talked about last time. And pointing it back to the 20s and 30s. Yes. Putting all this in Jesus's mouth, dumping their current issue into the days of Jesus. Well, okay. and the, each one of the gospel writers, we're writing to different communities. This is one of the points I'm going to bring up when I do my John the Baptist uh, spiel is because John, uh, theoretically, his community is over there in Ephesus. Uh, Mark's is up in Rome as well as somewhere else. Matthew's is, is us. And so they're not all in the same place. Some of them are hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. How did they get so scattered so far and wide so fast from Jesus's day? This helps explain that. We're talking 70 years or or 30 years after Jesus, etc. So now we begin to see, oh, well, these, these different communities separated by hundreds of miles, they don't have just instant communication with each other. So each community had their own particular view and it was all trying to iron out because, and the reason I'm bringing this up, uh, Mark is certainly one of the most adamant against the Jewish uh, faith, I'll say, be, compared to John. Right. I mean, in John, Jesus is a superman. I mean, he, he is in charge. He is powerful. He has no cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me like Mark does? No, he says, oh, I'm going to give my own life up on my own terms. So, That's absolutely yeah. right. So, okay, so n- now we've seen Romans and Gentiles, how they're portrayed. Now we've seen the original apostles, and it makes sense of why they would demonize them. And Matthew ratches it up. He So here is... Here is the, um, oh, actually, here's a little bit more. Let me, let me, I forgot these three. Here's a few more on the original apostles. Also in Mark, when people brought little, little children to Jesus, his disciples spoke sternly to them and Jesus became indignant and rebuked them. Okay. So, and then again, remember he says at one point, those who put a barrier between me and the little children, right? Better not be one. Yeah. Yes, you should be, basically you should be killed. You should be drowned. So here's Matthew, Matthew 18. He says in that same episode, he says, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If any of you put a stumbling block, this is what we're talking about. Any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones, 
who believe in me, it would be better if you had a millstone fastened around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. He's saying this thing about his own, uh, supposedly about his own disciples. They're the ones that said, bring the, don't bother yeah. Jesus, take the little kids away. Yeah. And, and they, would, they would know that millstone because isn't that like a ship anchor? And they were fishers of men. So they would know they're the target of that. Yeah, it's like this big, like, heavy granite it, it's it a even, big, heavy it, yeah they used to grind their bread i've heard they hollowed out some of them and used them as yeah. weights on chips too so they're very so they're very heavy yes um but notice this he says that in matthew and then in the very next chapter uh, as i see you can see up here on the screen the very next chapter they do it again they bring little children to jesus his disciples chastise those who brought the children okay Fascinating. so um yeah, evangelicals tend to hate this. They've, they've written books on, you know, there's been a few books on whether these, these gospels are taking shots at the apostles. And if, if Peter is, uh, you know, is a fraud, according to these authors, they, they hate this. Hey, Trevor, can I ask you a quick question? Um, yeah. Has anyone ever, uh, as far as chronologically, time-wise, has anyone ever compiled the New Testament in its actual chronology? And publish. Yes. Um, let me see if I have I, that. Would that would make reading the New Testament an entirely new experience? I would propose. So I don't know where it is, but the book is is the New New Testament. The New New Testament. Um, you can just Google the New New Testament, and they actually put they put the there's footnotes and everything. But it's the it's the book that was written earliest, and they, you can go all the way through. And there's notes and stuff. So it's, it's I'm going to look into that. So okay, I just wanted to know if that had been done. So. So there's a few more slides. So now let's look at Peter. Why? So why do I say, why did Matthew hate the Pharisees and Peter? Well, we already know that Matthew hates the Pharisees. We already know how they're portrayed from the last video and from everything I've written. Like, it's it's bloody. Here's Peter in the gospel. So before we get into showing how Matthew portrays Peter, here's this parable. And people like Mark Goodacre and others think that this parable is referring to Peter. So let's just read this real quick, and you can kind of see. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. Peter's name means rock. He's and, rocky. He's rocky. Yeah. Um, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. The reason why I highlighted spring up quickly is because Peter does this all the time. He gets enthusiastic, gets all excited, and then jumps out of the boat, and then falls you know falls in the water or he gets excited and says jesus you're the messiah and then he and then he he reprimands jesus and then jesus has to call him satan right so he does this all the time where he it's his roots are not deep and jesus as you go along in this parable it seems to make sense so he says and he continues but when the sun rose they were scorched and since they had no root they withered away hear then the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word of the of the kingdom and does not understand it the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. You know, he already told, he already said that they don't understand. The apostles don't understand. So evil comes, uh, the evil one comes away and snatches his heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one, a, a person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. Okay. Wow, light bulb moment. I have never 
seen that parable applied to Peter, but there he is. Now the problem oh, that's is fascinating. that's abs that that's fascinating. I, I'm blown away. That is really interesting. And the problem is, some of my students, when I share this with them, like they're some of my students who see this, it might seem kind of weak. I mean, we'll I'll, I'll give more data uh, in a, in a few minutes, but they'll see this and be like, no, that's not. Dr. Hatch is making stuff up. I've read those in some of the comments once or twice over the last few years, but this word fall away immediately falls away is scandalon. That, that Greek word is scandalon. So you have, to, you have to remember yes. two words, two words as we go along. The fact that Peter's name means rock, kephas, and falling away, scandalon. Okay, with those two words, let's continue and show how Peter is portrayed in Matthew. So here it is. And also Mark, but it's, it's mainly Matthew. So Peter's name means rock. The verb scandalizo in the parable, in that parable, is the same root used later when Jesus tells the disciples that they would become deserters. Okay. Peter responded, even though all become deserters, I won't. Everybody else will, but I won't. Yet he does. Okay. The noun form of the word is scandalon, meaning stumbling block. This is precisely what Jesus calls Peter later in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, you are a stumbling block. You are a scandal unto me. Okay? That's that same word that means to fall away. Scandalizo, scandal. This is why I, I, I love studying the Greek. You're, now you're making me want to go back and reread all this in the Greek. Thank you. This is awesome. And then the third bullet point um, just as the parable of the, of the sower, Peter quickly turns from a person of faith to a person of no faith or understanding. He rebukes Jesus, and he tries to correct him, and then Jesus calls him what? Satan. 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 Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan. <laughs> I've never ball. understood that, Trevin, ever. That is just so... We're talking the head up. Look, we're talking Russell M. Nelson quality here. I'm not trying to make anybody upset, but... And Jesus immediately said, oh, get thee behind this is huge. This is huge. I'm just saying. Right, right. Uh, okay, but, but wait, come wait, wait for what's next. He calls Peter. He consigns him to hell or Sheol or the underworld or however they understood it at the what? time. And then I say, as I say here, how do we know this? Because every occurrence in Matthew of the word scandalon refers to those who will be in hell. And I list a few: Matthew 13, 41 and 42. Matthew oh, 18. Wow. my gosh dude i all right okay I, I i don't mean to interrupt i'm trying to digest this i have never heard that before. now i really am gonna go i love studying the greek but now you're giving me good specific focuses to oh that's amazing that all this, this is incredible. all this is in my book I, you know that's a shameless plug all of this is there's other details in there but i just sort of given you one slide one or two slides, a snapshot. Yeah, this is, this, this is the meat. This is why it's so good to chew on. This is, this is really fun, really fun. Okay, so, keep Okay, going. so after, after he consigns him to hell, a few chapters later, he says, woe to the world because of a stumbling block, because of stumbling blocks, referring back to Peter in, in Matthew 16. So there's Matthew 13 where he consigns him to hell. Matthew 16, he calls him scandal on. And then in Matthew 18, he refers back, woe, woe to, uh, to stumbling blocks. And then he says in chapter 18, it would be better if you had a great millstone talking to people who are stumbling blocks, fasten around your neck and drown in the depth of the sea. 
I, I mean, this is this is pure. And again, this is the Gospels <laughs> written uh, after the destruction of the temple. But th this is pure vitriol against the apostles, isn't it? I mean, they really don't like the Jews. <laughs> they really don't like any of Jesus's apostles as far yeah. as that. They really are. Pro I, kn I knew there were issues with with the, uh, you know, the testimony of the Jews. I mean, ha listen. How could they possibly not? I mean, they're with him day and night, supposedly. I mean, they're with him at least all through the days. They've heard his teachings. They're talking. We don't have any conversation stuff. Uh, yeah. In you know, they traveled all the way up to uh, Tyre and Sidon in one of the accounts. I mean, that's a long journey, ninety miles. You know, it takes time. They're always talking. We don't have any of that. No, how on earth can they not understand? How can they be so pessimistic and miserable uh, while Jesus is there? And so, this really does help emphasize your point that we, remembering the Gospels are not eyewitness accounts, but actually are produced after Paul even, now this makes sense why even his, and didn't Jesus choose his apostles? Yes. Well then how, how can't he do a better job? I've actually heard that. That's one of the atheist arguments that I was studying when I had my loss of faith and went atheist for a while and then realized that's a dead end too. But I, I'm amazed how this fits so well, not that it's historical and speaks negatively against either Jesus or any of the apostles or followers. This is the presentation of different uh, groups, like you said at the beginning of this video, whom the Gospels are addressing when there really is a power struggle post-70 A.D., up into the this is so fascinating everyone knew, every, everyone knew that peter was uh, the best disciple right the ancient sure. the, the rabbis sages all throughout the rabbinic literature would list their students in order of those who were the best most capable students of perpetuating the message and so every time there's a list of apostles in these texts even in matthew peter's listed first so everyone knows that Peter and James and these kind of these guys, John, were originally probably really good guys, right? Mm. But just like the parable says that eventually they fall away. It's like in the early uh, Latter-day Saint church where a lot of the original uh, people in the church thought that Joseph was a fallen prophet. And they'll say, I still believe in the Book of Mormon. I still do that early stuff. And Joseph was a great guy, but he's kind of fallen off. It's same same thing with the later Jesus movement where they're saying, they're writing their text, and they're like, yeah, Peter, that, we all know Peter, and he once was a good guy with Jesus. They were great, and then they something happened to him. They fell off, and they hated Gentiles. They were all over the place. They were eating. He and Barnabas were eating with Jews, causing problems, siding with Pharisees, right? So you're, you're, you're just really opening up the new... You're you're just you're giving you're helping uh, clarify and I mean how much seriously how many times have we read these gospels you know and, and how many Sunday school lessons have we had and all that 
and and this approach appears to me at this point in time once because you've properly laid the chronological groundwork once we get that actual chronological groundwork now rather than being scandalized by the new testament we begin to see okay i i i get now why mark says what he is saying, not that it actually had to happen, because really, in some respects, in some respects, it's not the history that's the all-important point. It's the, it's the, uh, the lessons. It's the, after all, you know, the parable, all the parables, we don't go looking for the bones of the Good Samaritan in order to verify his truth. It doesn't even have to have, he could have made it up, and yet it is an invaluable lesson. It's very interesting how Mark has done this, because, you know, we're, we're not saying, we're not saying here, hey, this affects the historicity of Jesus, uh, the historicity of Peter, the historicity of any of the apostles, or any of that, just because of this particular slant on the presentation of the information. Well, people ask me when people accurate? say, yeah, that's accurate. And when people say, are, when they ask me, are the Gospels accurate or are they historically reliable? I will say very reliable in the generation in which they were written. Oh, dude. Yes, sir. Yes. That sir. That's, that is the only proper response. Yeah, see? I, I love this, man. I re I'm really enjoying this. If, if you can't, I don't mean to keep interrupting you, but I, I just want to make sure my audience is making sure uh, they're they're grasping. This is fun. Okay, keep, yeah. going. keep going. Okay, so we got two more slides, and uh, awesome. here's, a, here's a few more bullet points to drive the point home about Peter, and then and then I'll blow your mind with the last slide. You've already blown my mind with every slide. This is spectacular. See, see, <laughs> this this is the kind of Sunday school we all want and deserve. But wouldn't it be helpful if at the beginning of each New Testament year, uh, we would take the first couple of weeks in Sunday school and just give an outline of the chronological history, because that it, that is so important to helping us appreciate what we're reading here. Yeah. Don't you I, think? I, I think this is marvelous. Okay. The problem well, is the, the problem is I you know I'll produce a YouTube video and I say okay I'll get it out in the world and I'll share it with everybody and over the period of five or ten years thousands of people have seen it but it's it's not it's not that way because I might get a couple hundred people who see it I'll put it on Facebook and anytime there's an external link that goes to Facebook they bury the post and I'll get literally like two people who like or see and see it and so it's it, it's like spinning in the wind and. We, we produce and we try and, you know, it'd be nice to get 200,000 people to see it, but you only get a couple hundred or a couple thousand. So that's, that's a problem. But okay. So here's, here's this slide. Let's go through it a little bit more. So in Gethsemane, he tells Peter, James, and John to stay awake. Everybody remembers that, but they fall asleep three times. Jesus is grieved and mad about this. He comes, he's, he's upset about it. He says, he doesn't say to all three, he says, Peter, couldn't, couldn't even you stay awake with me one hour. Okay, so he singles out in, in Matthew and Mark, he singles out Peter. Then in this next bullet point, Peter denies Jesus. We all know that he denied Jesus, but he denies Jesus with an oath, an oath. And earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus prohibited his disciples from oath taking, lest they, quote, never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
right? And it's also interesting that while Peter is outside denying, so he's, he's outside denying Jesus with an oath, Jesus is inside refusing to take an oath to the high priest. Right, so you, Matthew's doing this on purpose. The author. Oh, what a juxtaposition! Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And then what happens after he does this? After Peter denies him, Peter it says Peter went out and wept, wept bitterly. Went out and wept bitterly after denying Jesus. And this is in Matthew twenty-six. And as I say here, each of those six occurrences of weeping earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. It refers to the weeping of the damned after final judgment. I've got all the references here. Matthew 8, 13, 22, 24, 25, right? Oh, so they're that. tying in that. They're tying through the Greek. They're tying in that theme with the, oh, yeah. See, that's the power of looking at the Greek stuff. Yeah. That, and the, wow. the author, Yes, the author of Matthew, there's this theme. And he says, wow. Peter went out and wept. The only people who weep in the gospel of Matthew are those who were damned after final judgment. Okay, And cast outside into outer dark. Wow. That's right. And then three three of those six associate weeping with being, yep, cast out in darkness. And it says that he's outside and it's a dark outside. These aren't coincidences. Like these, Matthew is not an idiot. He's not just, oh, yeah, I'm going to put this story together and use this word. He, he knows exactly his political message. And that's and is what he's trying to do. Okay. Oh, now that's a very good point, too, Trevin. That, that is a very good point. I'm going to emphasize that again, too, because... Um, yeah, you know, at one point, uh, I I actually ended up saying online, I've, I've retracted it since, but at one point, um, I said, well, I mean, what's the point of any of this? I, I was really seriously steadily reading the mythicists, Richard Carrier, David Fitzgerald, Robert M. Price, those guys, right? And and they say, oh, none of it. I mean, Robert Price even goes... I, I I'm embarrassed for him now. I never was persuaded of how far he took this. The Jesus stuff was more maybe, maybe not. But when Price said, well, even Paul didn't, I, Paul didn't exist. Oh, that's pushing it, you know. Come on. You, I, I get it. You don't like the idea of the New Testament and Jesus and all that. But really, that's that's stupid. I'm not trying to ad hominem the man. He's brilliant. He's way, I've got several of his books and I still enjoy him and I still learn things from him. But but this theme of um, uh, historical, uh, just invented stories. No, not necessarily. It's crafted intelligently. And like you said, are, are the Gospels history? I, 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 I'm going to emphasize it. I love how you put this. They are when we put them in the right century. I'm going to steal that from you, Dr. Hatch. That's yeah, yeah. fabulous. So we're, we're not talking, we're, we're talking history. And we know there's, there, stories also possess truth. So, yes, we understand there are stories involved here, too. In fact, there's a little bit of myth thrown in there, actually, from the Old Testament. That's all good, too, because mythology are 
also stories of truth of a more of a metaphorical style. History right. is not the only level. And so I really appreciate you pointing that out. That this is, I, you, if you can't tell, I am loving this. You're, this is fantastic. This is the best New Testament lesson I've had all year. Thank you. Okay, now shut up, Kerry, and keep going. Hey, uh, and by the way, the, the fact that the Gospels are talking this way, this is evidence that these people existed. Like, yeah, they could say way after the fact, they're just inventing this guy, Jesus, and they're pulling in the Hebrew Bible and everything he does uh, smacks of, of things that Elisha, John, uh, you know, Joseph of Egypt, Joshua, they all do the same. Like, there's a, that's all there. Um, there's all kinds. You line up Jesus with King David and there's all kinds of things. Okay, so you could make up, you could just fabricate a story of this guy and just pull in the heroes of the Jewish past. But the fact that they're talking like this and having these debates and these this insider war, rhetorical war, means that the stakes are high and they're and they're having this debate 30, 40 years later. They're not just making their stuff up and mad about some fictional guy named Peter or even the real Peter. Like these events happened even and they happened happened right after Jesus, like in the 40s and the 50s when they're having the Jerusalem Council. These and people this are real. Debate went on for decades, you guys. It's not like it was just a six-month to a two, two, maybe three year spat. We're talking decade after decade after this was serious. This was their reality. They had to figure things out. So this is not just a flash in the pan. In in fact, Dr. Hatch, um it's been a while since I've studied this, so it's probably a little rusty. The actual canon of the text itself, of, of the of the biblical canon, the New Testament included, didn't happen until post-200 A.D. Am I remembering that right? Are we talking right. into the 300 and 400-year range, right? Yeah, wait, yeah, yeah, in terms of... of, of collecting so these this together is and this is and and in different communities we're not talking about people who had all four gospels from the beginning and they understood the comparison contrast through parallel columns like we have the privilege of doing no some of these communities may have never even known that there was a mark a john and a luke all they had was matthew or all they had was Luke. And they were so far away that they couldn't. Some of them might have had two of the Gospels, etc. In fact, wasn't it, uh, was Oregon or Justin who described the reason we have four Gospels is because it signifies the four directions. It was the sacred, the cross, the cosmic cross, the solstices and the equina. But he was quite a bit late. Wasn't he about 180 AD? Something yeah, like they, that? They were late. yeah, they were late. And they're thinking back on adding this sort of mystical dynamic to, you know, why there's this. This many, but, yeah, 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 that's so, right. so you can say, well, that's just all based on numerology, therefore, all of this is just malarkey. Well, well, well you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater sincerely now. Uh, what Dr. Uh, Hatch is showing here is just very, very boy, I'll tell you what, I. I'm not going to sleep tonight, man. I'm glad it's Friday night because I'm going to go do some homework. This is absolutely okay. awesome. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Okay, so we're almost done, but one more slide. Okay. This is this, you know, and then we'll then we'll tie it up uh, beautifully. But here's the. Oh, do you have to? I'm enjoying this so much. Keep going, keep going. Okay. We should have told we should have told people at the beginning had we known it would have gone an hour and thirty minutes to listen on yeah. one point five or one point seven five speed. Don't anyway, worry. okay, so we get to Luke. Okay, so we got Matthew and Mark. 
most of this stuff has been in there. We can find occasionally Luke, you know, especially with the Romans and Gentiles, how they're portrayed. But it's mostly been Mark and Matthew. If you read Luke, the very first few verses, it says in there, he says to Theophilus, probably the guy who's funding this writing project, right? He's mm -hmm. telling, talking to him and he says, the reason why I'm doing this is because other gospels have, other people have done this before me, tried to write the Jesus story. And he says, but I've gone back again, interviewed people, try, attempted to write this again so that you may know the truth or something like that, so that you may know the truth. So we I don't know. He probably, according to Mark Goodacre and a few others, Luke probably knows Mark and Matthew. The Q people won't agree with this or, you know, whatever that Mark and Matthew have the same source. But I like Mark Goodacre saying that we don't need a Q, a source, some other source that that Matthew and Luke use together. We probably have Luke who knows Matthew. And I'll show you this next slide. But the reason why I mentioned those first few verses is because he if he knows those other Gospels and if he clearly he knows about certain gospels that have become wide enough spread that he knows about them, acknowledges them and says, I'm going to write something better. Okay. So here is what he does. Here's what, Hey, here's how he portrays Peter. Okay. And then here's a question I ask: why should we venerate Peter and the apostles? One of the reviewers of my book says, why should we, why should we venerate Peter? Like clearly he's going to hell or what is he Satan? You know, so this person was upset that he, you know, the, the, the text say what they say, but so why should we venerate Peter? Okay, so I asked my students that question. Here's what Luke does. Luke tries to save the apostles' reputation. He saves it. Here's the examples. Jesus rebukes the apostles during the storm and declares that they have no faith. We talked about that. But in Luke, there's no rebuke. He removes that. It, Matthew saves, in Matthew, Jesus saves Peter from drowning and says, you have little faith. Remember that? Mm -hmm. But neither Luke or John contains that story. Luke, Luke pulls it out. Mark and Matthew, in both of those Gospels, Jesus is frustrated because of the disciples' lack of understanding. He says it over and over. The author of Luke omits all of those rebukes. And I've got the sources up here. He, he takes oh, them all out. No. Jesus calls Peter Satan in Matthew and Mark, as we said. But the author of Luke changes the episode by deleting Jesus' attack on Peter. He has that episode. But that attack's not in there. And he portray, actually portrays him in a positive light. Like every single, it's not just one or two coincidences. It's every single time right down the list, you can see a pattern. And you're only looking for it if you're saying, how do these gospels portray Peter? Or how do they portray this person? Or how do they talk about this certain issue? That's the only, that's the only way you'll find it. Okay, so in Luke, Jesus does not say to the disciples, quote, it would be better if a great, if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. It's not in Luke. And then this last one, Mark and Matthew, in, in those two Gospels, the apostles repeatedly fall asleep in Gethsemane, which causes Jesus to sorrow. And in Luke, the apostles do fall asleep, but the author of Luke adds that they fell asleep only because of grief. They were so grieved and so worn out. That's why they fell asleep. Like, he, he, this is not just a coincidence. We know we, he's going line by line, and he's, acts, he's trying to write the story the way he thinks better he's he's recognizing what matthew and mark are doing but he's trying to save their and we don't know what to what extent luke is probably a pauline christian writing there's all kinds of stuff in gentiles in there but he comes he's very sophisticated his greek is sophisticated he's very much like josephus and if there was ever a gospel that tried to be like history the way we understand the writing of history that's luke 
And so, and he does this all throughout his gospel. He, he doesn't have the star of Bethlehem. He doesn't have this or that. He doesn't have Pilate. Pilate's not being like, oh, you know, my wife saw a dream and she told me to free Jesus. All of that is in Matthew and Luke backs away from it and tries to salvage their reputation. Okay. So as we tie it together, we have the two main factors, Jewish Roman relations uh, that led to the war. Then we have the Roman Christian relations. Okay. And that's not good either. That's in the sixties. You have the destruction of the temple and then you, so you have these Christian writers, also Jewish writers, writing about Jesus in a day when Christians and Jews were demonized by Rome and had just had their temple destroyed, okay? In addition to that, you have an intergroup, in, intra-group conflict where there's a rift between the Gentile exclusive, sorry, the Jewish exclusive and Gentile inclusive. Paul and Peter and that whole war, we saw how that works out. And so that's... That right there is probably a book that I'll write in the future for a lay audience. I, I wrote about it in one whole chapter in my book, but I want to lay out in more detail how all of those stories in the Gospels of Pharisees eating with Jesus, having the debate of who belongs, who doesn't belong, Jesus calling them hypocrites. We need to bring sinners or bring Gentiles in. All of that is this debate in the late first century dumped onto Jesus and his discussions with Pharisees and all that. So a lot of this- I, I will be argument. more than happy. I will be more than happy to help you research that book, just so you know. Awesome. Yeah. When you're ready, yeah. Okay, well, that's it. And I hope it adds, I hope well, this is a part two to why I think the Pharisees and Jesus were, even if Jesus wasn't a Pharisee proper, or, you know, they were in the same camp in the 20s. There's lots of data for that. It radically changes in the after the temple is destroyed. And this whole episode is- why the hostile rhetoric? And, and if I might add, too, this is by far my favorite presentation you've had, and I'm looking so forward to many more with you. Um, this is, again, your entire presentation here helps us recognize why, and it's not because the academia, the, uh, the biblical scholarship is uh, trying to denigrate Jesus or or the apostles. It's not uh, academia. It's not the biblical scholarship, the intellectuals who are trying to despiritualize the message of the gospel in the New Testament. But the general rule based on what I've heard and what I've read is pertaining to the gospels, it's, it's enjoyable. It is helpful in so many respects to have the parallel gospel harmonies, but don't harmonize the story because those differences are seriously significant. For instance, if we had only had Matthew, Peter would be a schmuck, but he, that doesn't mean he was. With If we only had Luke, we wouldn't understand the other point. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if we only had Mark, 
This is a point James Tabor makes over and over again, and it's very solid. We would know nothing about uh, Magi visiting the Christ child. We would know nothing about his earthly birth. Very precious little, I'll put it that way. We would know a lot about Jesus's baptism. But if all we had was the Gospel of John, John doesn't even say the gospel doesn't even say the Baptist baptized Jesus. There right. is no baptism of Jesus. We would not. John's emphasis was on John the Baptist being the witness, the marcherese of the light. He had nothing to do with the baptism, etc. And then, of course, the gospel of John has those seven important signs that fundamentally demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, and those signs are meant to be. But that's John's approach. We don't have anything like that in Mark. So, again, thank you for this, this incredible rundown. The you separated them for a reason, and, and I've tried to kind of help help add from a layman's point of view for the rest of us, because we're not up to your level yet, but some of us are working on it. We might catch in about 60 years, give us time, but um, we we need to see the separate interpretations and emphasis in the entire gospel to really help us appreciate what was happening post-temple destruction times. And you, your elaboration on this, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled because I'm blessed. You're on my channel. This is going to be one of the best expositions of this entire chronological New Testament, and I'm not going to shut up about it to anybody for a long time because this is really helpful. And, and so thank you so much. So I, I will let you have the last word, Dr. Hatch. Uh, what, what, what can we look forward to next time? What else um, have you got up your sleeve? Cause this was wonderful. <laughs> so before, okay. So before that, I'll just, so I might forget. So I just want to say this, and that is you can see why it's frustrating when you, this even happened last time when we were like 15 minutes into the Pharisee explanation and someone got on and said, wait a minute, Jesus has criticized them all over the place. And you can see, like, in my mind, I think, oh, I've had this discussion so many times. I don't expect everybody to know all the detail. But part of me wants to say, we've got to be more sophisticated. Like, if, if I'm, I've got a master's and doctoral degree and wrote a master's thesis on it and been grinding away at all this data, if I'm just going to say, oh, yeah, the Pharisees were the good guys, people either think I'm stupid and I'm just, like, making stuff up, or they should think, Maybe there's something to it. Let's dive in. And you can see that last episode that we did and this episode is combined probably almost three hours. And if I, I got to go through and I got to say, here's why Matthew's using the word hypocrite. It's a play actor. There's a whole discussion. Here's how Matthew and Luke differs here. Here's, what, here's why Paul's mad. Here's the role that Pharisees play in the Jerusalem Council. And I just detail this in three chapters of the book. And mm -hmm. it just takes it so complex and this is why I wish the curriculum writers or others would learn some of this so that it's not just cheap shots at Jews who rejected Jesus, right? Oh, over and over and over again. And, and I'm so with you. I'm so with you. But on the other hand, I, I, I am in the same boat as you are in so many respects. But 
baby steps. <laughs> here's here's where you and I get to test the patience of our faith. <laughs> because well, now, quite frankly, I have to I have to also re uh, re repeat over and over and over again. But it's okay because I have discovered that there's quite a few in my audience who once they have caught on to something, they take that football and they're running down the field with it, screaming, you know. So I'm so with you. I wish we could take a bullhorn. Here's part of the issue so far as I'm concerned, and, and I have taken a little bit of heat, not much, not as much as I expected to, but I will choose this time to repeat this here because of it will help emphasize your terrific presentation and why I am so happy we took the hour and 45 minutes to explain this instead of just, oh, you want the answer? Well, the Pharisees are the good guys. Well, nobody is better off if you take 10 seconds to give them the answer that way. We want to show why, but I will say this, our culture, and, and this is unfortunate, I'm not, I'm not crowing about this, our culture, and I mean the American culture, I am not trying to ad hominem anyone, I am not trying to pick on any religion, this is just a cultural statement, it's so unfortunate, our blessing of this internet, our magnificent blessing of our, of our cell phones, and the technology, the capability we have of traveling so much, 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 much miraculously faster through jets. And we can cross the ocean in just a few hours. Come on. You, you tell me there's no miracles. It depends on what age you live in, I suppose. But our culture dumbs us down. And this is a travesty. And Someone, Dr. Hatch, yourself, and I, for two of us, and I know many, many other hundreds of podcasters have chosen to, we will give our life, meaning our time, our efforts. Look, this stuff costs money. We both know that. But we will give our life to try to say there really is something so much better than the quick TikTok 30 second cutesy little, oh, look at that. The girl fell down in the mud and showed off her panties or whatever, and thinking that's intellectual. Um, there's so much more to it than the three minute uh, quick blurb. Right. The, the, the people, even the people in Joseph Smith's day, you know what made Orson Pratt so magnificent is, and back then, all you have to do is read the Journal of Discourses. I promise we've got evidence. Dr. Hatch will back me 100% on what I'm about to say here, too. Back in Joseph Smith's day and Brigham Young's day, it was nothing for them to give a seven-hour sermon. And people were enthralled with it. Now, I know from our point of view today, well, crap, I want to go water skiing. You know, I want to go get on the boat, or I want to go do this, or I want to fly to Cuba, or I want to go on vacation, etc. Our culture has changed significantly enough the downside, the one I'm fighting against, the one Dr. Hatch is lamenting and fighting against, which we do need to convince the public, and we are trying our best to make this interesting. Um, we need to fight this dumbing down because that 
ultimately, and I mean the culture, not any specific religion or any specific school. This actually will enslave us. Ignorance is not bliss, folks. I, I really need to fight against that verbally a little bit stronger without politicizing. No, no political parties involved here, please. I, I'm just saying as a general rule, we can decide I can improve. Now, I told myself decades ago, I'm going to learn something new, one item every single day for the rest of my life. Now, I have far exceeded that goal. But have you ever seen me, other than my one diatribe I threw once in, an, in a mistaken understanding, have you ever seen me grumpy and frumpy and miserable and hating learning? Yeah, look at all that. Yeah, my right. greatest joy is finding new books. I just acquired Dan Vogel's book, you know, the, the charisma book that Dan Vogel just popped out on Joseph Smith. Um, I have purchased new books on Josephus uh, by Steve Mason. I have, I have purchased Paul's Ascent to Paradise by James Tabor. And you say, oh, well, that's just religious boredom. Don't prejudge a book until you read the information. This is so sensational. Have you gotten this, Dr. Hatch? Have you read oh, yeah. this? No, I don't have that yet. I promise you're in for it. And the nice thing is it's only 1495 paperback, but what it was his doctoral dissertation, but right in line with what we can talk about later with Paul from our point of view. But so I'm not trying to throw a rant. I'm just saying I wholeheartedly am with you, brother. I I feel <laughs> what you're saying. I completely agree. But we are making a difference. It, it, it'll just be one person at a time. You and I are not going to let this culture of stupidity, this culture of waste of time, the Hopis, I've been listening to the Hopi prophets and they're on YouTube. They have living prophets today, wise men, they call the councilman, the, the gentleman, and they only have 10 and 15. Uh, hey, they're only 10 or 15 minutes. So if you guys can't handle two hours, go watch the Hopis or the Navajo. I apologize, Navajo. They're different. Um, the Navajo elders, they have it exactly right. They're saying, you know what America's problem is? You're too distracted. You are so distracted. You do, you're 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 lost. You you don't set goals. You're you're shooting each other absolutely every single day. An age group doesn't matter. There's eight year olds, up to seventy year olds. We've had a hundred and sixty nine mass shootings, and there's only been a hundred and forty days go by <laughs> in the year. I I mean, folks, that that's the definition of of lost, of insanity, of no direction. We're not, I, I don't think, I'm not going to speak for you, Dr. Howe. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but we're not telling you the answer is, well, you got to read the Bible. That's not what we're saying. We're, we're, I'm saying from the neck up is the most important part of our body. And if you think I'm kidding, Go try to talk to an Alzheimer's person. See their life. And, and I'm not saying that to denigrate any of them either. That's a horrible disease. But uh, the mind is the most important thing. Without it, you really are nothing. So I, I've and heard we're all, that we're all, the rest also, what you say is so important that I wanted to emphasize that. So We're also not saying that you have to agree with every point 
about Pharisees or Jesus or, or what this is, but clearly sure. what we can at least, we can see it in the text is that there's conflict, there's controversy, there's complexity, and Paul's clearly mad. Well, if we didn't get it right, if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding, he's mad about something else, and we'd like to know what that is. And, you know, if Jesus is calling Peter Satan, okay, maybe the evangelical response is like, no, it's like, it's not what you're thinking. He's not really, it's not a pejorative or, or however they're going to deal with it. Okay. But he's using those words and he seems to be taking shots at Peter. Why? So even if we're not right, we have to acknowledge it's not just so simple to just, you know, say, well, Jesus hated the people of his day and he was constantly kicking against the institution and, and criticizing like, it's not that every time I hear that, it's just like, ah, oh, you know, Jesus hated the, the, the leaders of his day. Well, how do we know that? Like, that's a 40, 50, that's a 50 to 60 year old text that's reading back into it. So it, at least appreciate and understand, like, I'm a king of gray and complexity. Like, I'm not binary. Some people, their minds work that way. Like, I'm a champion for the gray area. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. Um, there is still incredibly interesting intrigue and mystery with pretty much every biblical personality. I know we all love to imagine, well, yeah, I was raised up in Sunday school. I've been to hundreds of Sunday schools, so I know what the Bible's all about. I know everything I need to know, etc. I see people say that pretty much daily and all. And yet... Uh, John the Baptist has recently been coming back out through very serious academia that is utterly exquisite. I would put Dr. Hatch's presentation right here tonight, not, not tooting my horn, tooting his horn. This presentation is seriously one of the best New Testament presentations I have seen, and I, I'm blessed to have been able to experience it with Dr. Hatch. But without question... Yeah. This is thank you. I say that sincerely. This is without question been one of the best top five. I've listened to at least sixty YouTube presentations this last month. Sincerely, not because while I'm working and if I'm traveling or whatever, I can put in the earbud in one ear and and listen while I'm driving and and things like that. So I am very fortunate that I can listen to sometimes five. YouTube videos in one day. And I've been listening. I've been focusing on the New Testament because this year the church is focusing on New Testament. That's why I'm so glad Dr. Hatch is here. But this presentation is by far one of the most interesting, informative, and clarifying presentations. That's what I didn't mean to get hyper, but, but that is part of what got me excited. What have I said since I came back to podcasting? I want clarity. Dr. Hatch has been providing that with this series. So uh, we can close on that good note. Thank you so much. I'm I'm looking very forward to having more uh, discussions with you, Dr. Hatch. And, uh, <laughs> and hurry up and shut up, Carrie, because I've got some Greek to go study. Thank you so much for this fabulous presentation. I know I'm a nerd, all right? Yeah, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to get into a college profession or whatever, but I'm too old for that. But I still love the scripture in the original language, what very little I know, but I am learning more. So you are a wonderful inspiration for that. So thank you again. And everybody, we will be back uh, 
just as soon as we can next week. Uh, it might, it might or might not be Dr. Hatch, but we're going to try to not make it so long in between uh, discussions because uh, we're on a roll here now, and I cannot wait to see what Dr. Hatch has next because it's obvious to anybody who uh, just stops and listens to this, that Dr. Hatch's expertise is seriously <laughs> enjoyable. And, and you know what? And don't let this swell your head, please. But I, I'm really enjoying your, your manner of presentation, the way you're, you're, you're not, you're what's the best way to describe this? You're not being hoity toity. I mean, you, you have a doctorate degree and, and you're, you're a new Testament expert and, and you, you have a college career and all that. And yet you make me feel like I, I am just right there with you. We're good friends just talking and chatting, and I so appreciate it, and I know my audience appreciates that too. So, okay. Appreciate you, I appreciate it very much. Yeah, yep. We are going to bug out, and we will be back just as soon as we can. In the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, stay up late, and listen to this again and again and again. This is one of the best episodes I have ever had done on the New Testament I am thrilled with it.